0: In Jesus' name. It's good to be with you this morning. This morning's message is a little different for me than sometimes. I have this thing where normally I have a goal in mind and then I shoot towards that goal. And, and this message came about rather differently. And so generally I don't share how I was led to a particular passage, but I thought, well, in order for you to understand where I'm coming from or why I was here, I thought, well, maybe I should share some background. Um, you know, it's probably happened to you before, but you've been listening to the Bible, you read over a verse, or you read over a familiar passage that you've read over many times, and then suddenly a verse jumps out at you, and you say, well, I never read it like that before. I never, I never saw it in that light. You know, it's a, it's a familiar verse, something that we're, um, or maybe it's a passage where you've even shied away from because we don't understand it. There's a whole lot of Bible passages that we clearly understand. They're pretty black and white. And then, just for interest's sake, there's a passage that, well, you know, what is it even talking about? What does it mean? Well, that's what happened to me. A brother was having a devotional, and it was on the last part of Luke chapter 16. And as he was reading, I was, um, you know, meditating on what was being said, and and several thoughts uh, stuck out to me. And the Bible, and often this happens in the Old Testament, it will give years of history in a single chapter. So you'll have uh, the the beginning of a person's life, you'll have their actions, you'll have what they've done, and then at the end of the chapter, you'll have a decision on what happened based on those actions. Or maybe it's just several chapters. So um, you have King Ahab. And you have his life and how it started out. And then the choices he made. And then it did not end in a good way. So we say, well, we're not going to emulate what King Ahab did. But as we read, we get ideas and thoughts. And there's characters in the Bible that we wish to emulate or even imitate. And it's often based on the end of their life. It's not often based off the first few years of their life but we like the way the story ended. And and some ideas of this is, for example, the life of Joseph. So none of us would want to be hated by our brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused because of our integrity, and eventually thrown into a cruel dungeon, only to be forgotten by some people that were in the dungeon with you. However, towards the end of Joseph's life, I think we tend to, I don't know, romanticize it just a little bit. And, you know, when Joseph was making his brothers quake in their boots, and when he was second in command to Pharaoh, and all the th- these things were going right for him, and he was saving his people, we're like, well, that's really wonderful. But look at all the trials and tribulations and things that Joseph went through to form the character, to form his life, and to make his end a blessing. And so often we don't wanna go through those first things, but we like the end. Another example is Job. No one would like to go through the tragedy of losing all your children, all your possessions, and your very health, and have your wife say, curse God and die. And yet, the end of Job's life seems pretty pleasant, does it not? And how it ended seems pretty great. Elijah. Hunted by King Ahab. Had a bounty on his head by Queen Jezebel. Lived in hiding in the wilderness for many years. Ran out of food, or he thought he was gonna run out of food at one point, was, wasn't he fed by the ravens? And, and he got to the point that he wished for an early death. <laughs> so that's how discouraged Elijah was at one point in time. He's like, why can't I just die? And he's like, I'm the only one left, just get rid of me. And yet the end was pretty, pretty awesome taken up to heaven in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. Who wouldn't like that? I mean, that's a good way to go. Um, some wanna go in their sleep, but if you're picking exciting ways to go, a whirlwind and a chariot of fire is is pretty awesome. And But he went through a lot of trials, a lot of tribulations, a lot of testing to get to that point in his life. Let's for a minute pretend that we don't know the story found in Luke 16, and maybe you don't, but Let's just begin, Luke 16, starting at verse 19. And there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which laid at his gates full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Let's just stop there for a minute. There was a certain rich man, well-dressed, well-fed, and there was a certain beggar who was covered in sores. He was hungry. He was looking for crumbs, and, and the fact that it says he was covered in sores would lead me to believe that he was probably not well clothed either. You could probably see his sores, and the fact that the dogs were licking him would give the indication that he, he didn't have much clothes. If you wish to look like a beggar, I think the first thing you start with, with is your clothes, right? You wear tattered clothes or whatever it is, and then don't do your hair for a while, and you could look rather homeless. Well, not knowing the rest of the story, at this point in time, which character would you choose? Which person would you rather be? The rich man or the beggar? Well, I think not, if we didn't know the rest of the story, I, I think each one of us would say, well, let's choose the rich man because that sounds like he's living a much better life. And then I got to thinking, well, most of all of us are well-dressed and well-fed and fare sumptuously every day. I mean, our fare, and I think my wife shared this with someone, it's, it's often better than what is served in king's palaces. You know, to eat fresh produce out of the garden and grass-fed beef and uh, grass-fed deer or what, whatever it is, and, and trout caught out of the stream. You know, the the thing we fare sumptuously um, on a fairly regular basis. Well, what if I went on to tell you that the rich man didn't have time for God and the poor man, God is all that he had. Would that change which character you would want to be like? I think that would change who, okay. So one doesn't care for God. One, God is all he has. Well, in that case, then I'm going to choose the poor man. And yet I was challenged once again that time after time, we attempt the impossible. Jesus said, it's impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven. Isn't that what he said? But he said, with God, all things are possible. So we love that little clause, and we hold it very dear to us, because many of us are in a category of, of being somewhat wealthy. And so we hold that clause very dear to us, and we say, well, with God, all things are possible. Let's continue to read in verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us, that they would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they would repent. And Abraham said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So here we have Lazarus, he died, and he was given a heavenly uh, entourage into paradise. He was taken by the angels, and he was carried up into paradise. Well, that's beautiful, is it not? More than likely, no funeral, no fanfare, no mourning the loss. He was just another beggar. No celebration of life. He just died and he was gone. But the other side was so beautiful, so glorious, because he had Christ in his heart. He had, he had trusted in God. And although things in this life weren't great, he committed his life to God and was blessed when he died. The rich man died and it says he was buried. So the, the idea of him being buried gives me the idea that he had a funeral, probably a proper funeral. Maybe even a priest there that said he was a good man and did lots of good things in the community and told how he was gonna have salvation because of all the good, good deeds he had done and reassured everyone at the funeral. You know, some of these are just thoughts that I had. But now we have this divine insight into the situation and we know this wasn't the case. It said he was buried and he went to hell. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes and suddenly his perspective of life changed. So he went from a very selfish man to a very unselfish man in an instant. He said, well, what about all my brethren that are, are thinking the same way I'm thinking? What about them? Can you just, don't even send me back Send Lazarus, send that beggar back and have him tell them what's over here. Go warn them. Well, do you think that the two, one went to heaven because he was poor and one went to hell because he was rich? I don't believe that. I don't think that's what it was. But is there a chance that the riches of the rich man took his eyes off of God? I believe there's a very good chance of that because I see it all the time and I'm constantly on guard of it. As God blesses, I don't want his blessings to take my eyes off of the eternal prize. And I don't want his blessings to, I start trusting in earthly things. And so um, more than likely the rich man's riches took his eyes off of the eternal reward and Lazarus's poverty probably kept his eyes firmly fixed on heaven. I met a young man and he he found Christ and there was so much he had so much baggage in his life that he just could not wait for the freedom of heaven. He had so many things weighing him down and all he could do is look for heaven because he's like it's going to be better on the other side. I have a lot of things down here that did not go well. And he had, a, he had an internal perspective that I admired. Um, the rich man, seeing his fate, he begged Abraham to send Lazarus back that, they would, that he could tell his brothers not to follow in his footsteps. I looked up the word repent here. And in this instance, the idea of repent means that they would think differently or reconsider. Are we thinking about the end of life? We're young, most of us. We talked about having a terminal illness. Um, Rodney said, well, we're all gonna die. So in, in a sense, we all have a terminal illness. Um, unless we're you know, transported to heaven in some miraculous way, we're gonna pass away, or unless the Lord returns first. So we do have a death sentence on us. Are we thinking about what it's gonna look like when we're no longer here, when we die? Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. If they are not persuaded by that, they won't be persuaded though one rose from the dead. This morning, we have the scriptures. We have the Bible with all the truth of God, God's love letter to us, God's divine road map, and we have it in front of us. And if we don't believe this, if someone rose from the dead and told us what was on the other side, we won't believe them either because it takes faith. Do you and I live our lives in light of our eternal destination? Well, what does it take to persuade one that God's word is true? And I think it comes by faith. We need to have faith that what God says is true and what he says will come to pass. Well, where does faith come from? It says faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So our faith comes by hearing God's word and then applying it in our lives. And then we see it working out. When we apply what God says and we do what he says, um, it just works and it strengthens our faith. Well, that was a brief introduction to what I felt led to speak on today. Um, (laughs) uh, No, As as I listened to this story, I wondered what led Jesus to share this particular story? Why was he sharing this story? So while the guy was having devotions, he ended devotions, I was skipping back up in the chapter and I'm trying to figure out you know, why did Jesus have to share this story? So I was reading up, and that's where I got to the verse that really puzzled me. And that was Luke 16:15. Or not, not necessarily puzzled me, but gave me some pause. So Luke 16:15, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Okay. Did, you, did you hear that? That which is highly esteemed among men is, well, it doesn't say is and an abomination. It says is abomination to God. And I think that and makes a big difference. But I read that verse and I, I said, well, I don't, I don't understand this. What does what man highly esteem? What are we highly esteeming that is abomination to God? Because if I'm highly esteeming something that's an abomination, I better quit doing that, right? Because I don't want to do something that's abominable to God. So what does abomination mean? Abomination, it's something that is detestable. It is something, it's considered idolatry in the sight of God. It's considered hateful in the sight of God. And I thought, if something is hateful in the sight of God, well, I better not be doing it, so I better understand the verse better. And a good Bible teacher once said that a verse without context is a pretext. A verse used without context is a pretext. Well, I am no English major, and I am less than a minor when it comes to English. Um, but So I was like, what's a pretext? Well, just to say this verse, it would be taking it... Um, Making it say something that it's not intended to say. So if we don't take it with the rest of the scriptures, we can warp a verse. You can take one verse out, pick it out, and and you can preach any number of doctrines if you only use one verse and don't take it with the whole of scripture. So then I decided, well, let's make this easy on myself. I'll just go to the front of Luke 16 and I'll start reading there and I'll figure it all out. Not knowing... That Luke 16 is a passage that has baffled me for years. So I was like getting deeper and deeper in a rabbit hole and I was like God there there has to be another subject that you want me to address. So that's I'm not preaching this as authoritative but I want to learn with you this morning. So let's go back up to the the first part of Luke chapter 16 and start at the beginning of chapter. And the reason this was so important to me, because I read a verse in Revelations 21, 27, it says, And there shall in no wise enter in, and this is talking into heaven, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's very important that my name's written in the Lamb's book of life, and that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And so we need to know what God expects from us. Luke 16, starting at verse 1. And he said unto... And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called them, and he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, and to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Let's continue down to verse 8. So he called everyone his Lord's debtors unto him, and he said unto him, unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Does that all make sense to you? Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, why, God? <laughs> uh, is it okay? Uh, Please reveal something to me, because this isn't helping verse 15 make any more sense. Well, this story has little subtleties, and I think it's a deeper story than I'm even able to give it credit for. And so after the service, we can continue to to discuss it further. But I'm going to point out just little subtleties in this story as we go along. And you think about them, and maybe we discuss what they mean later on. Okay, so there was a rich man who had a servant or a slave, and he put him in charge over his money and his possessions, his goods, and over the course of time, that servant squandered him. So he might have been doing um, fraudulent activities, and he might have been, um, you know, he sold the guy's wagon and for, let's say 50 bucks, well, let's say 100 bucks, and he kept 50, and he gave his master 50, and he, he was pocketing the money, and then, you know, the next person come along and needed some wheat, and he just gave him all the wheat. And, and then he didn't even harvest one time, and all the crops failed or something. He was wasting the goods. He was not a very good steward. He wasn't someone that you want in possession of your possessions. And so, it, as things often happen, it came back to the boss. Well, this guy's wasting your stuff. You need to do something about it. So the rich man said, well, I want you to do some accounting. I want you to write down what you've done with my goods. It was kind of an audit of sorts. And he said, I want to know what you did with my goods. And then after you've written down what you've done with my goods, consider yourself fired. Um, So this, this got the Stuart thinking. He's like, okay, I'm about to lose my job. And I've had an office job for a long time. So I'm not about to go start running a shovel and I've been making a lot of money, and I'm too proud to beg. So he come up with a plan to just increase his fraudulent activities, is what it appears to me. And so he called all his uh, master's debtors, and he said, come over. And part of me thinks, well, shouldn't have he known how much they owed him? Because he started asking him, well, how much do you owe my master? And then he, it appears to me he like took the bill out of the filing cabinet and it said 100 measures of wheat. And he said, quick, cross out your bill and write down 50. And, and then the next guy, this is where there's little subtleties. The first guy, he cut his bill in half. The next guy comes in and he owes 100 measures of wheat. And he said, well, take it down to 80. Well, why didn't he cut that guy's in half? Those are things that I'm not sure of. Is wheat more than oil versus, you know... To me, he should have just cut the next guy's in half because he would have been just as happy. Um, And so he was doing this that when he lost his job, he could go to the boss's debtors and say, I gave you a really good deal. I let you out of a lot of money. Can you house me? Can you help me out a little bit? Maybe don't give me all of what savings I gave you, but give me a little bit of money so that I can survive. He was preparing ahead. He was thinking ahead. He was preparing for his future habitation. Okay. Well, it didn't take long for his master to figure out his accounting errors and that he had cheated him. But at this point, his master commended him because he had done wisely from an earthly standpoint. Now, it says the Lord commended him, but the Lord is in a little L. I don't think Jesus commended him for his unjustness. It was his master commended him because he was wise in earthly wisdom. And then, it, then there's this little thing, and this is where grammar would have really helped me in school if I had studied. But there was a colon there. And I said, what is a colon? I don't even, I've never used a colon when I was writing. You know, I wouldn't even know where to put it. And so I think grammar is important in the scriptures because there was a colon there. And so I looked up, what does a colon do in a, not in the body, but in a sentence? And, and so it says the, the colon in a sentence explains the previous sentence with a new thought. Um, it, it changes it. Okay, so we have a colon there. And it says, the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. And then you see the colon. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And this is Jesus speaking again. So how are the children of this world wiser? So I had to ask myself two questions with what I know of the Bible. Well, before I get to that, let me ask you two questions. Are you the owner of your possessions, whether it's your house, your vehicle, your land, are you the owner? Are you the actual owner or is everything that you have is God's and you're simply stewards of it? Now, depending on how you answer that is how you're gonna view life and what you have. The second question is, what are we as children of light doing to prepare for our future habitation? So what steps are we doing To prepare for our future habitation. If indeed we are simply stewards of God's property, how faithful have we been with the things that God has entrusted into our care? So how many resources that God has given you have you wasted on things that have no eternal value? When I look at my life, I've done a lot of wasting. I've done a lot of frivolous things that accounted for nothing. Um, oh, if, if God would take an account of my life and he's like, I gave you this blessing and then you blessed yourself with it and I meant you to share it with someone else. How many times have we done that? God's provided something for us and then we just kept it and he meant for us to continue to pass it along. What about when the superintendent taps you on the shoulder and asks you if you're willing to teach or be a song leader? or help out with ushering? What if you're asked to help out in another area, to step out of your comfort zone, to leave your home, to leave your area, to leave everything that's familiar to you and go serve somewhere else? You know, the mission committee has been tasked with finding people to help out with the smaller churches in West Virginia. And one thing that is extremely apparent to me, and there's many factors involved, and I'm aware of this, but to many people, they would never leave the comforts of their home to go to a smaller community. It's just, it's too much work. There's too much unknowns. There's not enough opportunities. And, and you hear all these excuses, and, and that's simply what there are. If God has called us to somewhere, he will provide and make a way that we can go there. But so often we get so tied to wherever we are, and God calls and we're like, well, there's no way. Is there a chance that if the Lord would take an accounting of our life and past conduct, that we'd be in the same position as this unjust steward? What Jesus was portraying here is that the children of the light will one day give an account and they better be preparing for their future habitation which all of us would like to be heaven. One day we're going to give an account how we've spent our earthly possessions, how we've lived our life, how we've spent our time, how we've spent the resources, how we've used the gifts that God has given us. Have we used it for his glory or have we heaped it upon ourselves? Now, you will not be given or you will not get into heaven by cheating the system. So this person, this unjust steward, he prolonged his life of luxury by cheating the system. That is not how it works in the spiritual realm. There's no cheating the system. Is our life one of service to others, or is it one of service to self? Okay, so then the passage just continues to confuse a little bit. Luke sixteen nine, And he said unto you, I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. The Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. Okay, I admit I don't fully understand verse 9, but here's what I come up with, and we can discuss this further after the service. Jesus said unto them, so from this premise we understand that Jesus would never say anything to contradict scriptures, correct? Jesus never would say anything that would contradict his other teachings. So it says, make yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Does this mean that we should be a friend of the world? No. Does this mean that we make friends by unjust means? No. Because that that would go against Christ's teaching. The Bible is very clear that when it says, Love not the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life. These are all things of the world. Do not love the world, because the love of the Father is not in these things. And it's also equally clear, and it says, Defraud not a brother. It's part of the Ten Commandments. If you read Matthew 10, 19, um, it says, defraud not. So I think another way to read mammon of unrighteousness would be dirty money, which is the money we have in our wallets, which is physical assets, which is the things of this world. The riches that Christ talks about are out of this world. They have nothing to do with dollar bills or gold or silver or platinum, or whatever cryptocurrencies, whatever they have today, they have nothing to do with that. that. All those things would be considered mammon of unrighteousness in this passage. Well, how do you make friends of the mammon of unrighteousness? Well, in the context of this whole scripture that it's talking about, I think one of the ways could be is giving to the poor. So we've been given earthly wealth. We've been given possessions. What do we do with them? Are we helping the less fortunate? Are we helping the needy? Are we helping the hurting? But then it says that they may receive you into everlasting habitation. Who's that? Talk? Is it talking about the poor? Are the poor going to receive you into everlasting habitation? No. Maybe some of them, because they're going to be in heaven saying, come on. Uh, you know, if, if their hearts are right before God. I'm not, to be poor doesn't get you in heaven. I wanted to make that very clear. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and faith in God that will get you into heaven. But there's a certain thing about poverty that makes you keep your eyes on the prize. Ephesians 4:28. let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So why do we labor? Why do I go to work on Monday? So that I can have to give to him that needeth. That when you die, your riches, or in the child of God's case, the riches of God that have been entrusted to us will serve as a witness of where our focus lies. Is that going to be the case? Well, the possessions that we've been given serve as a witness of where our focus lies? Some of these things are rather sobering to me because where is my focus? And, and on a day-to-day basis, I have to keep reevaluating. As Jesus blesses, as God blesses, I, I have to keep on looking. Where does my focus lie? Would I be willing to give up this? Would I be willing to give up that? If I get called to another area, am I willing to go? You know, I feel called to Highland County f- for the time. But if I get called somewhere else, am I willing to go where God calls me? Well, who is capable of receiving us into everlasting habitations? There was that semicolon there again, indicating a, a new thought. I th- I think, in relation to the context of this scripture, I think it was referring to angels, that the angels would receive you into everlasting habitations, and and also God. Well, here's a couple of verses in James, food for thought. James two two. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring, and goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they blaspheme thy worthy name by that which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. God hath chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom of God. When you're out witnessing, who's more likely to receive the gospel? The millionaire in D.C. or the homeless guy that's living in a tent? It's the homeless guy. He has What does he have to live for? And, and he has a different perspective on life. The millionaire, well, he can buy more toys. He can do more things. He has, he has all these things down here to look forward to in his mind. And he doesn't know when the end's going to be, so he's going to have a good time while he's here. And it's really hard to reach those people for the Lord. But what about us? What is our perspective? Jesus goes on to say some profound things. If you are not faithful in the little things, you won't be faithful in big things. And if you are unjust in little things, you'll be unjust in big things. You know, often we view little things discrepancies as in, insignificant but they are indication of how we'll deal with more important items. Luke 16 11 says if you're not faithful with unrighteous mammon or dirty money like we saw in verse 9 who will commit to you true riches? True riches would indicate that there's something that, such as false riches and much of the what the world considers riches simply serve as a veil of true poverty of the soul. In Revelations, the Laodicean church thought that they were rich. They said, we are rich and we have need of nothing. What was God's perspective of that church? In God's eyes, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I think we get a warped perspective of ourselves sometimes. In America, if one knows how to save, there's a high likelihood that they'll get ahead financially. And so verse 11 especially challenged me. If we're not responsible for the physical or material blessings God has given us, if we're not financially responsible, will, there be, will we be spiritual, spiritually responsible? Are the two tied together? If, if we waste our frivolous with our earthly possessions, will we also waste and be frivolous with the spiritual blessings God has given us? And it made me think, the two are tied together. There is a correlation between the two. And while a one is of far greater importance, which is our spiritual blessings, they reflect each other. There's a little saying, a penny saved is a penny earned. And it was explained to me that a penny saved is better than a penny earned. Does that make sense to you? When you earn a penny, Then the government government adds on taxes, and they add on all these fees, and so it's less than a penny. When you save a penny, you keep a penny. So saving is a better way than earning. There's two ways of making money, for lack of a better term. Does being financially responsible mean that we are stingy? Not at all. And one preacher gave the analogy, are we a river or a dam? When stuff gets to our life, do we accumulate? Does it stop at us? Are we a river so the blessings come to us and then flow down to the next person, flow to our neighbors, flow to those that are in need? And I pray that we're a river. Does what God has blessed us with flow to others? God knows our heart. Proverbs eleven twenty three: The desires of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is that scattereth, yet increases, and there is that withholdeth more than his meat, but is ten to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him, but blessed shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. So there's the generous person, and the more he's generous, the more he's coming back to him, and that's not always the case, but there's also the fact there's a person that just holds on to the little bit they have, or, you know, there's a little more. It says there is that withholdeth more than his meat. So he takes more than he needs and he still tends to poverty. When we're generous, there, there's a blessing. You'll have far more spiritual blessings anyway if you're generous with what God has given us. It goes on, we have often heard the phrase, you cannot serve two masters for either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll cleave to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees who were covetous heard all these things and began to deride him and mock his teachings. The word covetous here means they were fond of silver. So they heard all this stuff and they're like, this guy is crazy. And they started laughing at him and making fun of Jesus for teaching these things. And that's where we get back to verse 15. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. How often do we justify ourselves among ourselves? Are we justify ourselves among men? To give the appearance of being righteous while longing for the things of this world. Well, I've given myself a little test, especially as it relates to real estate. If I can't boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, and promote the glorious work of God while selling property, then I tend to quit selling property. And, you know, I get challenged on this stuff because it's not always easy to share the gospel. And it's not always easy to tell others about God, especially when you know there's some resistance there. Or you you know the person's an atheist, and the person doesn't even believe in God. And Joe shared a little example, and this is probably where this came up. I was asked recently to look at a nice home here in Highland, and I'm almost flat out of listing, so I need some more properties to sell, and in the course of our conversation, the man says, uh, what is wrong with our world? And I could have said, well, beats me. <laughs> you know, you tell me, and we'll both know. Do you know what's wrong with our world? I know what's wrong with our world. Our world needs Jesus. Our world has went away from God. Our world has denied God in every font. Doesn't want anything to do with God. That's why there's school shootings. That's why there's abortion. That's why there's all these things that are wrong because people have left their creator. They don't want to even acknowledge that there is a creator. And, and that's what's wrong with our world. And that's what the spirit was telling me to say. So I didn't know this guy's beliefs or whether he believed anything or not. And it turns out I don't think he does. But I just shared the gospel with them and I said, this is, this is what's wrong with our world. And, you know, I don't know if I'll get the listing or not, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, at the end of the day, I'd rather share about God and, and have eternal blessings than a few thousand dollars. The men of this world, so what's highly esteemed? What do men of this world highly esteem? The love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. The world loves show. The world loves luxury. The world loves indulgence. And I think these are all things God can't stand. And there's probably a greater list, but these are an abomination in God's sight. What do we as children of God highly esteem? Purity? Holiness? Submission? Charity? It's a vast different Between what the world highly esteems and what a child of Christ should highly esteem. God knows our hearts. May we be faithful in what He has called us to do. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. May we be laying up treasures in heaven. God bless each one of you.
1: Boom. Uh-huh.